0: I mean, mediators sometimes get settlement fever where they just absolutely have to get their settlement so they can put another notch in their settlement belt. If mediators have a settlement rate of more than 75% of the cases they're mediating, they probably are settling a whole lot of cases that ought not to be settled because some cases aren't ready for settlement. The power dimensions haven't been dealt with.
1: I think many of the disempowering experiences that, parties have within the mediation spaces are actually on us mediators that maybe have not been willing to step in and do what we need to do, go deeper um, into the conflict because we're afraid that something will be out of control as if, you know, we're in control anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's the key thing. I think our our profession and our mediation mediators need to start um what is our role in educating parties in terms of how to select mediators also and and what should they be looking for
2: hello and welcome once again to jumping off the ivory tower with prof julie mack my name is dana cornwall and i'm the project manager at the national self-represented litigants project
3: And I'm Julie McFarlane, the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: And for today's episode, Julie, you have a great conversation with two guests who have written a book together, which I know you'll tell us more about in a second. Uh, But I'm going to introduce our first guest that uh, fans of the podcast may remember from I believe one earlier episode, bernie mayor who's he <laughs> well just we'll just kind of mention off the top that, that he happens to be married to dr julie mcfarland the founder of the nsrlp <laughs>
3: he once said that he was married to the nsrlp so i think that's a fairly <laughs> close relationship
2: i feel yeah. like that is kind of accurate yeah, yeah. Bernie was a founding partner of CDR Associates. He has provided conflict intervention for families, communities, universities, corporations, and governmental agencies throughout North America and internationally for over 35 years. Uh, He is also Emeritus Professor of Negotiation and Conflict Resolution at Creighton University. And he has worked in child welfare, in mental health, substance abuse treatment, and psychotherapy. Uh, Of course, he has written uh, books previously, and those include The Dynamics of Conflict, Beyond Neutrality, Staying with Conflict, and The Conflict Paradox.
3: And it also, it should be said, um, he's also very good at taking out the garbage, doing the laundry, (laughs) Um, and filling and emptying the dishwasher. So, you know, he has a range of skills here.
2: And and I have to add, he's great at making margaritas. Oh,
3: yes. Makes fantastic margaritas. Mm-hmm. True, true. <laughs> and Bernie has a colleague, a long-standing colleague, Jackie von Guzman, who is his co-author on their new book. Jackie is now the inaugural, the first vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Eastern Mennonite University. She used to work with Bernie at Creighton University, where she was professor of conflict and peace building. And Jackie also, as part of her international practice and experience, has provided mediation, facilitation, and consulting services to many international and transnational organizations. And she's also been a Fulbright Scholar, Uh, Before this Jackie worked in law and health policy so she has really interesting and varied background in fact they both do. And they came together on writing this book, because I think they both felt that there needed to be more said about how we move away from a make nice approach to mediation and facilitation and conflict resolution, and in particular the events of the last few years and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, uh, have shown the need for disrupting some of the systems that support uh, the conflicts that arise in the world. And so what they're doing in this book is really talking about how mediators can go further than those superficial solutions. And we thought this would be a really interesting thing to bring to the many people who listen to this podcast who've also either practice mediation or have themselves been part of a mediation process, perhaps in your civil or your family law matter. So what you're going to hear is a conversation that discusses both the traditional approaches and some of their ideas for doing this kind of work in a much more systemic way. So Jackie and Bernie, thank you very much for having this conversation with me today. I'm excited to introduce the people who listen to this podcast to the work you've been doing, because I think that when people hear the word mediation, they usually assume logically that we're talking about dialogue and conversations that can resolve a conflict. And of course, to some of the people who will be listening to this, uh, especially people who are currently part of a legal dispute, uh, this might sound like an impossibly optimistic, idealistic dream when they think about their own conflicts. But what you are doing in your new book, The Neutrality Trap, is to present a slightly different, actually, I'd say a very different picture of what mediation really is. You know, you talk about how this has to be more than just making a settlement, that in fact, it's beholden on mediators and mediation as a process to try to get underneath some of the systemic reasons for the dispute, which of course means that you don't have the option of rushing to a nice making nice Solution if it doesn't really address the underlying causes of the conflict. And, you know, I imagine there are going to be people listening today who've been through mediation as part of their family law dispute. And they may look back on that and say, you know, we've still been disputing ever since. We've never really sorted it out. It wasn't a really realistic solution for us. Now, that obviously is not a particularly useful model for people facing today's problems nor is it particularly useful for some of the larger conflicts of our time. So I'm gonna start with Bernie because you've written a lot about this for a long time now. What do you think is missing in what I'm calling this make nice version of mediation?
0: The book is really addressed to all sorts of different approaches uh, to dealing with conflict and mediation is one of them. But I I think maybe there's two things that we need to say that are really missing from mediation. One is a large part of these conflicts, like in family conflicts, are not something that are gonna go away with a simple agreement. Doesn't mean that sometimes people just want an agreement so they can go on on and deal with other stuff as time goes on, but at least we need to understand that a good part of what is uh, uh, underneath the conflict, you can't simply agree about by signing a document. If you have different uh, philosophies of parenting, um, for example, or if you have very different senses of where where the kids need to be in order to go to school, but you know you might get a a temporary agreement on that. It's going to keep on coming up and over again, and and I do think that sometimes mediators you need to recognize that people still want that, but they ought not to be part of forcing people to think about it just that way. They need to at least help them think about it uh, more broadly. And the second thing has to do with power, that we are often dealing in in conflicts, um, and family conflicts are certainly a good example of that, where there are very big power differentials. And if mediation just goes along merrily and assumes let's get an agreement and everybody's gonna be happy and I'm gonna stay in a completely neutral role and 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 not try to uh, influence the outcome in that respect, they are in fact influencing it in favor of the more powerful one. Mm-hmm. And so those are two broad themes that we address that I think are, are, are very fundamental problems that the, that the mediation field has to understand.
3: And just, just going off that, Bernie, you know, another thing I know that you've written a lot about over, over years is that there's almost like uh, a pride that mediators take and have a great settlement rate. In other words, it's, it's, it's kind of held out there as the talisman of being a good mediator often that you've settled a lot of cases. Now, you know, if what you're saying is sometimes cases aren't ready to settle or appropriate to settle I see you'd have something to say about that, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, mediators sometimes get settlement fever where they just absolutely have to get their settlement so they can put another notch in their settlement belt. If mediators have a settlement rate of more than 75 percent of the cases they're mediating, they probably are settling a whole lot of cases that ought not to be settled because some cases aren't ready for settlement, the power dimensions haven't been dealt with, and I think that we have to be very aware of that. Now, a number of people have made this critique, but I think our addition in this book is is the whole uh, critical component of what does it really take for change to happen and how do you address power differences.
3: Right, right. And and I'd like to to move on to that a little bit because one of the things that's great about your, your book, your new book, is that you both use examples from your own experiences as mediators, but also from your own personal lives uh, in order to critique this idea of avoiding the uncomfortable questions, uh, overlooking the fact that people inevitably have power imbalances. So I found it particularly powerful when you reflected on when each of you have felt less than powerful for raising a conflict. So not as mediators, but in your own personal capacity and some of those ways in which you weren't comfortable related to your identity and the fact that efforts to meet your needs didn't ask those really hard questions so Jackie you know one of the things that you do so beautifully in this book is talk about what it means to be you what it means to be a Latina woman from Puerto Rico at a U.S. university and what that means when you try to bring forward a complaint or you try to get colleagues to engage with you on an issue that they're not maybe even recognizing so can you say a little bit more about that experience and how it shaped your views in this book
1: thanks julie absolutely i mean I, i believe strongly that our experiences and who we are and who we encounter um actually influence a lot what we do what we choose not to do our ethical stances because i didn't start in academia. I I did healthcare work, legal work, and then I started in academia 16 years ago. It is full with misogyny and racism and um, violence. And so what that means for a a woman who is from Puerto Rico, who comes to, you know, places in academic or schools of laws or settings that have been historically um, built and shaped and formed for um, people that don't look like me or don't sound like me or don't speak like me, is that all of a sudden the sharing of flourishing ideas is not a thing anymore, right? So it's okay to discuss ideas if they are ideas that this mainframe status quo agrees with. But it's about if it is about raising issues about women or women or students, who I know Julie, you've done a lot of that in in, in your career. If it's about issues of raising racism, then you're shut down. What it also taught me was, in terms of dealing with conflict, um, you know, there's all this negative stuff that happens out there, but then there's also the how powerful relationships and connecting with others is to be able to actually affect change, institutional change or any other kind of change.
3: What would you say, Jackie, to somebody who might be listening to this, who might be in the family law system in the mm-hmm. U.S., in Canada, wherever, and they're now being offered an opportunity to have a mediation and i'm using mediation because that is by far the most well-known approach um would you tell them you've got to build a community of allies before you go in there you should be aware you know of what your power or your lack Mm -hmm. of power is i mean what would your advice be other than don't try it because of course, there are only really two choices for people in the family law system. They either settle their case or they go to trial. They're both often not good choices. So what would you tell them?
1: I would tell those people to definitely go to mediation and to never forget that, in this, that mediations are also social spaces. Mm-hmm. And therefore, within those social spaces, they are embedded in a web of relationships, not only of the person that you're dealing with, but what surrounds you once you step outside of that mediation setting. And therefore it is an opportunity to alter and change systems within your family that may not be working and to see it not as an individual action between you and, you know, maybe two parents that are divorcing or arguing over alimony to be really aware that this is larger than that individual conflict. So,
3: We recently talked at some length with the students who are enrolled in our self-represented litigant online school about mediation. And these are people who are going through the family court process in Canada. And needless to say, there were people in that group who had had some very poor and very disempowering experiences. If somebody is feeling that I'm going into this, you know, much as you described yourself within the university setting, already as the outsider or already as the person with fewer resources. I mean, often people who are representing themselves are facing a lawyer for their partner on the other side. So what can people do to give themselves, you know, the opportunity you're talking about, which is to use that space, but without feeling like they just got beaten up in there?
1: I think one of the key things is get a really good mediator. I think many of the this experiences that parties have within the mediation spaces are actually on us mediators that maybe have not been willing to step in and do what we need to do go deeper um, into the conflict because we're afraid that something will be out of control as if, you know, we're in control anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the key thing I think our, our profession and our mediation mediators need to start. Um, what is our role in educating parties in terms of how to select mediators also and, yeah. and what should they be looking for? And yeah. I don't think historically we've done a good job at that.
3: 100% agree.
1: So I, I'm gonna shift tack
3: a little bit now to ask you about one of the particular parts of the book that um, I find particularly challenging. Uh, and that is when we're thinking about differences amongst and between people, And, you know, just like anybody might do coming to a family mediation, how do we get off the idea that people are either, and these are what you call the three crutches, crazy, stupid, or evil? This is a way of explaining the behavior of the other party as simply as possible. And it's deeply satisfying, of course, to think that the other party, not you, but the other party is crazy, stupid, or evil. And that's why you guys use this idea of those as a crutch. But you also say that those explanations don't really get underneath the conflict to look at the systemic causes. They don't really help us very much practically with figuring out, you know, how did this situation come about and what is it that can be done about it now? Now, you know, this is in some ways a controversial thing to say because what you're effectively looks like you're doing is you're, you know, you're not calling Putin a butcher, But what you're really doing is saying we need to know more about Vladimir Putin and the conflict in Ukraine than just there seems to be megalomaniac in charge of Russia at the moment. Can you say a little bit more, you know, whichever one of you wants to start about what is it that you can do to go deeper than those three crutches and how does that actually help us?
0: Well, I think Putin's a very good example. I mean, I personally think the guy is evil. Um, and he certainly is behaving in an evil way, um, let me put it that way, but uh, where does that take us? All we need to do is condemn how evil he is and hope he's taken out of power and root, and root for some sort of coup d'etat in, in Russia. I don't think that takes us anywhere, nowhere productive, nowhere productive in finding a way to the end of this and nowhere productive in a long, longer term approach to how we get Russia out of the Ukraine and support the Ukrainian people. But if you really wanna work on the conflict, if you really want change, then you have to look beyond it, you have to look at the systemic roots of what's going on you have to look at people's deeper interests and concerns that they are uh, some of which are not legitimate but some of which probably are you have to look at the identity basis of of uh, of what's going on in a conflict and you have to look at the narratives that they that they tell themselves is is that illegitimate
3: to want to know more about why someone who's demonstrating, you know, some kind of really horrible attitude, why do we need to get underneath it? What would you say to someone who would say, I don't need to know more about that?
1: So I would say that you you can't really understand or change anything if you're not willing to look at the past and what sustained that past. And what the alternative for me is just not an alternative. The alternative of saying, I want to look away. I don't want to know. I don't want to engage with that evilness or stupidity or racism is to fully disconnect with it, which means that that status quo will prevail. And so as painful as it is to look into what are the, the reasons, as stupid, evil or crazy as they may sound, um, for people to engage in behavior that is racist or misogynist or against you know LGBTQ um, population, people, anything is that you need to look at that past. I also would say that, that people who say that um, usually comes from a position of privilege, that when your past has been rosy and everything has been okay, there's really no need to go back and explore that past because you're good, you're fine. But for people who have experienced um, violence in the past, whatever that may be, or racism, Or sexual abuse or any other type of um, difficult situation, that you can't really move on until you address those systemic structural issues that are there. So the alternative is looking away and saying, oh great, things will just keep the way they are. I'll be fine in my bubble. Everyone else just needs to move on. And I don't think that is is, um, healthy for our society or for us as individuals.
3: Now, obviously, these kinds of conversations that we're talking about having here are not the make-nice conversations that generally go on in mediation. And one of the other things that you talk about a lot in the book is the importance of disruption and escalation in conflict. Now, you know, again, this is not the sort of conventional view out there that mediation is about kind of calming everybody down and making nice. This is taking on this idea that for some conflicts, and particularly for the less powerful person, to have power in that conflict, you actually need to seek some kind of escalation or disruption.
0: But I think the whole civil rights movement, for example, is a a very interesting example of how effective disruption uh, has occurred. I think some of the changes we've had over time, slow and painful, though it might be, uh, that the Me Too movement represents, about understanding and and our tolerance for certain kinds of behavior has been an example of effective disruption. What really comes out of this conversation
3: is that each of you, as people who spent a lot of your professional lives working as mediators, you don't see mediation as being particularly useful unless it really is about change. It might take many incremental steps, but it has to deal with the really hard issue if it's going to be about change. What in the practice of mediation would really, you know, bring this idea of real change, systemic change into full perspective, do you think?
1: I, I just think basically it's a missed opportunity is what I've been seeing in mediation spaces. And it would make me really happy if people read the book and start intentionally linking what they are doing at an individual level with what they can set up their parties for success when they actually leave the mediation room. And to find spaces where we're not just mediating to reach a settlement, but there's an array of things that we can do, including coaching, including within the mediation space itself, that, for example, can give people some skills to go out and then deal with their family member or their child custody issue or whatever it is, or the challenges of working with a legal system. So my hope is that that we go, we look beyond the actual conflict that is in front of us, and that we realize that we have the potential to, to do more than just solve that one person's individual issue. And that we're only going to be doing that if we start to really be thinking intentionally about what we do when we sit at that table.
3: That's great, Jackie. Thank you. And thank you to both of you very much for this conversation. I know that it's going to provoke a lot of thoughts out there, as does your book. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: There's a lot to talk about in this conversation. And we actually just, you know, spent a little time kind of reflecting on, okay, well, what do we leave out? Because there was so exactly. much to kind of dive into. But the first thing that we both felt was important to, to bring up again was our experience this winter with the SRL school, which I would like to, I hopefully we'll talk about that uh, more in a, in a future episode. But as you brought up in your conversation with Bernie and Jackie, we had a very interesting experience in the session. We we did um, kind of a two part, two sessions on settlement. And in the first one, I was personally taken aback by the reaction of the students to that course and the negativity reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and I think naively, I had gone in thinking like, it'll be, you know, daisies and roses. You're talking about mediation and coming together and solving conflict through mediation. That's lovely. I was not prepared for what people were telling us about their experiences in mediation. And we were hearing I mean, really, it was a lot of the students were talking about really unfortunate and negative experiences they had had in mediation. It was a real trigger for, for a lot of them. And it was a difficult class because of that. And I was not prepared for that. I was part of that
3: class too. And, and I was I was taken aback, although afterwards I thought that was silly. I shouldn't have been t- taken aback. <laughs> because basically the reaction of not all, but certainly some of the people who'd been through their own experience of mediation was... Don't voice this shit on us. And I think that what they were reflecting was a sense that, you know, despite the fact that perhaps there were power differences between them and the other party, despite the fact that there was a long history, uh, in many cases of these kinds of conflict, especially if we're talking about family transitions, the mediators wanted There to be you know a solution which very much focused on you know substantive pieces like how many times Mm -hmm. do you have the kids every week and so forth without really addressing some of the things that were the conflicts in the marriage i mean these were all marriages that were ending and i think that people inevitably shy away from that i mean i saw this in my own mediation practice Um, let's not talk about the really bad stuff but i think the real point what i learned as a mediator was you've just got to talk about the bad stuff and you've got to recognize how unsafe people might be feeling and how powerless they might be feeling and address that, or you're not gonna have any kind of solution that lasts. And you know, to give you a couple of examples quickly, I did a lot of work with school boards and parents negotiating over their children's uh, special education needs and their individual education plans. And what I found was they could reasonably often negotiate, you know, the substance of what the supports and assistance their child would get should be. But each year they had to renegotiate it because they'd never really established any understanding of their role in the system with the school board. So they were accepted as people who would weigh in on this. And there was there was just a, a difference in their values about how the system should work. It was also actually funny, Dana, because last night I was totally gripped by the BBC's blow-by-blow blow <laughs> discussion. Um, and I think probably at least some of the others will know this, that Boris Johnson, the English prime minister, has been... Um, um, has just gone through a no confidence vote following months and months and months of um, stories that amounted mm-hmm. to scandals. And it just seemed to me it was almost like the same thing. It was constantly being reactive, you know, somebody does X, let's react to it, which tends to be the mediation model. Mm-hmm. But what you really needed for Boris Johnson, and in, I think, in mediation is what Bernie and Jackie are saying, is to go much deeper. You know, what is the real problem here? What are the values that, that are at stake? And let's not be afraid of talking about them.
2: Do something Bernie said that really hit me. His concern about, you know, this kind of, as you said, notches on the bedpost mentality of mediators that like, well, you know, look at my settlement rate. I've I'm settling the vast majority of my my cases. And he said, I think if you're settling more than 75%, then that's a bad sign. That's a sign that you are settling things that should not be settled. Um, And you're, you're, I think, ignoring real power issues and safety issues perhaps, and all sorts of things that may be going on in some of these cases.
3: And and we see the, the result being, and this is what some of our school participants were talking about, that those agreements don't last. So everybody starts to feel really weary of going around and around having the same conversation. But what they're trying to say, I think, is that that it's the wrong conversation that they're having.
2: Right. And, you know, as you're saying, as you were all advocating for in this conversation, I think what needs to happen, of course, is to go deeper. And one of the ways to do that is, as as Bernie and Jackie were talking about, uh, to kind of reflect on that tendency to... To think of your opponent as crazy, stupid or mm-hmm. evil, which is such a, it's such a good kind of way to think about this and, and realize that I mean that's kind of what we all do yeah, in we our lives do. whenever we're have a conflict with somebody else, um, you kind of you put them in one of those categories or some combination of them and, and it might be true. Of, and it may very well be true, and I appreciated that you all talked about that and addressed that, and used the example of Putin, right. um, who somebody who, yeah, I would agree with Bernie, he's evil, um,
3: evil. But, but the real problem in order is, to doesn't get, get you anywhere.
2: Exactly, exactly. If you don't actually try to understand why that person is is doing the things that they are doing, um, then you're not really going to get anywhere in terms of addressing the underlying issues
3: and that was certainly something we, we then talked a lot to our school participants about I think that was that was yes
2: important. and it's yeah, hard, and that,
3: it's really hard to do
2: it's hard yeah absolutely but I mean just to kind of I think the thing that I really liked about this conversation in the end was that y- you talked about both the personal individual level of conflict when it comes to whether it's a marriage or a relationship ending or you know some other kind of civil dispute and you also talked about these systemic conflicts and the kind of the isms you know racism sexism homophobia all these things and i think what this conversation really made me think about is how those are so related and you kind of can't have they're embedded and you know those isms inevitably affect those individual conflicts and i think even vice versa and i think it's important to really understand the way those work together and to understand that you know at the end of the day it's conflict is conflict and whether it's on an individual interpersonal scale or a much broader societal scale it's still conflict
3: so we recommend to you the neutrality trap we will put details up on the podcast website
4: Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Charlotte Sullivan, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. First, we have a news release from the Department of Justice Canada on advancing reconciliation through addressing the overrepresentation of Indigenous peoples in the criminal justice system in the country. On June 9, 2022, the Honourable David Lametti, Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, the Honourable Mark Miller, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, and Ellen Filippelli, Executive Director of the First Peoples' Justice Centre of Montreal, announced funding to provide community-based justice services to Indigenous peoples in Montreal. The community-based justice initiatives are programs operated by the First Peoples' Justice Centre of Montreal, they aim to support, inform, and empower Indigenous persons in addressing their issues with respect to criminal justice and in resuming a healthy, constructive, and autonomous life. These initiatives involve a spectrum of services aiming at prevention, diversion, probation, reintegration, victim supports and services, access to alternative measures for Indigenous peoples involved in the justice system, and the provision of culturally sensitive education and training to police, judges, legal advisors, and other actors in the justice system. The program also provides GLADU aftercare support, which helps Indigenous community members access culturally appropriate community-based programs and healing plans. These include healing circles and traditional healing with elders, referrals and advocacy for clients with other service providers, including mental health and addiction support, community reintegration support, and healing support for clients for whom the development of GLADU reports brings up past trauma. A Gladue report, which devises its name from a 1999 Supreme Court of Canada decision regarding special considerations at play when sentencing Aboriginal offenders, is a type of pre-sentencing report for Aboriginal offenders that refers to institutional racism and the impacts of colonization on Indigenous peoples in Canada. This decision comes during National Indigenous History Month and involves a total of $492,000 pledged by Justice Canada to the First Peoples Justice Centre of Montreal. The money will cover three years of funding for Gladue aftercare services, three years of funding toward program integrity to support increased demand for support for Aboriginal offenders, and five years of funding to support the continued delivery of community-based justice. This announcement is welcome news as the country continues to work to overcome its long history of institutional racism and response to several calls to action made by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. For our second and final piece of news for today, we have a piece by Annabelle Arimoni covering a recent access to justice study showing an exponential increase in dismissals of race-based cases by the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario in the Law Times. Many recent applicants with cases relating to race, colour and citizenship have reported receiving notices of intent to dismiss from the tribunal. Some of which state that the tribunal does not have jurisdiction over the subject matter because it relates to what it calls a general allegation of unfairness that is not connected to one of the grounds set out in the Ontario Human Rights Code. The rate of sending out notices of intent to dismiss doubled between 2018 and 2021 to 989 in 2021 alone. That represents 25% of the total applications received by the Human Rights Tribunal in 2021. Compared to the period from 2009 to 2017, during which the tribunal only issued 150 to 300 notices of intent to dismiss per year, this represents a large scale increase. Francis Nasca, a law student at Osgoode Hall who worked at the Human Rights Legal Support Center for several months in 2021, says that one of the issues around the early dismissals of claims of racial discrimination may be related to access to justice in the context of self-represented individuals who draft their own pleadings. Per Tribunal Watch Ontario, 80% of people who apply to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario are self-represented. Some of these individuals may not be familiar with the exact language to capture why their issue is considered discriminatory under the Human Rights Code. However, NASCA says that one of the issues is that self-drafted pleadings are getting tossed out even if their stories disclose discrimination under the Code. NASCA says that several factors might play into why self-represented people may be filing their applications incorrectly, however, including language barriers and disability. Thus far, NASCA's team's findings have been presented to the Ontario Bar Association and Tribunal Watch Ontario. It remains to be seen whether the Human Rights Tribunal will alter their practices by reviewing the rise in notices of intent to dismiss, especially in the context of racial discrimination, and whether they will expand supports available to self-represented claimants. That concludes this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Please join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.